640 Toronto presents Think Tank. Two guests, Toronto's top stories. Now, let's meet the guests. Let's do that. I like this panel. I like this duo. We're going to get into some big stuff over the next 20 minutes or so. We welcome on a former Liberal MP uh, and author of the best-selling Can You Hear Me Now? Makes a great Christmas gift, even a few years later. Uh, Selena Cesar Chavan joins us on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. You're always plugging me. I love it. Uh, thank love you. It. Do you have any Do you have any uh, close relatives listening to the show this morning? <laughs> my daughter, of course, and my husband. Uh, how old is your Your daughter's a fan of Toronto Today. I'm she, gonna, I'm gonna I'm outing you there. I'm outing you like Piers Morgan without uh, Prince Charles, King Charles. Who, how old is she? <laughs> she's 24. Just finished writing the bar, so she's. Uh, Up and coming legal mind, yes. I'm salivating over that 24 to 54 demographic, Selena. That's great news. Uh, Anthony Fury cannot claim uh, as much. How old is your oldest child? (laughs) He's 10 years old. And and the talk radio wars are something he is not terribly interested in or concerned in yet, uh, I would guess. Not yet, no. And and I have no Christmas product, no uh, stuffing, uh, uh, stocking stuffer to to sell like Selena's book. But you know, you you, you can book me for your holiday party. Oh I'll sure, I'll, I'll sing the Mariah Carey Christmas album. I'll I'll, I'll work the room. Yes, you'll. Well, it, it, you, you know, you were in parks, you were on sidewalks, you, you were at, you guys were both everywhere in the spring. It's it's colder to do that now. So depending on the street corner and the and the and the wind chill factor, Anthony, uh, you might not be as present in the in the public eye as as you were in uh, in May and June. Maybe not. And he did a oh, good no job. Shame. We'll be out there on the corner. Did a good job in May and June. Congratulations, Anthony. <laughs> oh, thanks, Lena. Well, let's go here. Um, This uh, one-day ceasefire uh, continues. We woke up this morning, weren't sure that it would. But I I will tell you, I think we're all pretty exhausted by the conversations. There's a job to do um, here, and I know you both uh, weigh in, and you're so deeply invested in the news cycle. But wow, um, the conflict. I, I actually feel like we're turning our attention to other things, the practicality of the housing crisis, cost of living, groceries, our kids, etc. Am I, Anthony? Let me start with you. Am I right or wrong about this? We, we do. We, are we running out of bandwidth to keep talking Israel Hamas at the energy we were talking at three or four weeks ago? Well, absolutely. There's a recent Time magazine cover story about how President Zelensky is frustrated by the fact that when he travels around the world now to meet with world leaders and and to speak in their you know houses of parliament and legislatures, there's just actually not that much of an interest for him. There's very much fatigue for the Ukraine war differently than it was at Mm. its peak. And and that's frustrating for some people in that. Uh, Obviously, we're getting to a similar situation here. I I think because we are rather tragically used to flare ups in this region dealing with Israel and Gaza. And I think people now say, okay, this is just the same old flare up as we've seen recur every five years, every 10 years or what have you. I think October 7th was was very different, which is why we have Netanyahu saying, I'm going to eradicate Hamas and why the U.S. and many other countries are on board with all of that. But we are kind of getting into uh, a normalization of this situation, you know, for for better uh, or worse. Selena, do you have that same level of fatigue for you, for your conversations about it? It comes on TV and you just cannot give it the energy. Maybe you gave it five or six, just, just for what it does to the person, uh, in, in you know, top to bottom. It does. It, it does. But I, I think we, we cannot continue to 
desensitize ourselves because we are distanced Mm -hmm. from um, particular world events. There is so many things happening in the world that are not being covered. Um, But at the same time, it is essential to support that humanitarian effort and and continue to encourage that international engagement to prevent further escalation, bring about resolutions of peace and and justice and security for all parties involved. We cannot continue to just uh, disengage, Um, especially, you know, the holiday seasons are coming. We have all Mm -hmm. kinds of different distractions. If we continue to do that and forget the world's most vulnerable, we'll continue to leave people behind. And I think it's up to um, just societies to continue to put pressure on governments, to continue to put on that civic pressure that will lead to a sustainable ceasefire, genuine dialogue and lasting solution for peace. Yeah, you, you hit on so many things there. And as I said, we all three of us are parents. Tons of parents listen to the show, Selena. And the one thing I said to a friend of mine yesterday who's got kids similar age, I, I just want a better pl- – I want all of this in a better yeah. place when they're our yeah. age. Like it's a little like looking yeah. at our parents and saying, you guys screwed up on this. You screwed up the environment. You screwed up this. I don't want our kids looking at this saying, you messed up the Middle East even worse than it already was. I, I hope our our generation that's making the decisions can do better than the, the people 25, 30 years before because nothing's worked. Exactly. And, you know, as I as mentioned off the top, my daughter, 24, wrote the bar. She's looking to be a human rights lawyer, um, mm-hmm. Desiree. And just the conversations that we have around this are really around sustaining those conversations so that we don't lose sight of the fact that we have a responsibility, again, as just societies, as individuals who could who could push governments, who could pressure governments, who could have these dialogues to ensure that we have um, that we have justice, that the lives are not continuing to be lost on both sides, that the suffering in Gaza cannot be uh, ignored, that, again, we push for a sustainable ceasefire, this so that we we don't have, and I know we're going to be talking about yeah. other issues throughout the show, ongoing refugee crises, these ongoing geopolitical issues. We cannot continue to just disengage and unplug. Anthony, sometimes this is just about desire sometimes, isn't it? Um, you know, the friend I was talking with yesterday, I hadn't seen him in ages, and he's Jewish. We talked about this conflict, but he also said, let's take even something like clean drinking water. How on a planet as rich as ours do we still have such a high percentage of the population that doesn't even have running water to wash themselves or drink? And he's right that that that's a desire issue that we could do with a snap of a finger. if We really, really, really wanted to. It feels like. Yeah, well, I think it's a scandal that there are quite a few First Nations communities in Canada that still don't have running water. Uh, you go and you read all the different documents up there, and there's a huge paper trail of ones that have been put under third-party management about why they, they can't actually get connected to different infrastructure grids. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, this is all interesting details, but eventually you're like, someone just make it work. Like, just make the call. Get get these folks the water. It, but, you know, I think when we talk about these these long-term solutions, I mean, it does come down to different uh, different choices and views we have. Like, I think Selena and I may disagree a bit when she talks about sustainable ceasefire. I know different people mean different things with those terms, but, you know, I, I support the eradication of Hamas, and I think that's what gets us to the sustainable peace. Other people kind of see it differently. So, you know, we, we want peace, we want stability, but it's pretty clear, you know, when we see this with the protests on the streets and everything, that folks do 
uh, do view something different from from first principles, and that's where that's where things kind of diverge, unfortunately. Yeah, and we've we've got to be able to disagree honorably about these things. I want to move on to international students, uh, Selena. We note a study from yesterday uh, that there's more international students seeking asylum in Canada. That number's doubled in the last five years. And I guess people might listen and go, "Hey, sure, guys, if if international students are increasing, um, people seeking asylum or looking to stay permanently in Canada would as well." But I, I'd maintain if we've got one crisis, we probably have a second. The international student scenario is a crisis with eight people living in two bedroom apartments with no part time jobs, with shooting housing rents up. We all want mm-hmm. we all want a, people to, who come here to be the best and brightest or to come because there's nowhere else to go. But we want them to have a fighting shot. And these numbers tell me that 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 people coming here don't have a fighting shot as much as they used to. Right. And so there's a couple of things here that we really need to consider, especially uh, in Ontario, uh, where you have a a provincial government that has put caps on domestic uh, tuition. The the funding formula for universities is such that students generate revenue. And one of the, the ways to do it when you have caps on domestic students is to bring in international students because yeah. they are charged significantly more than domestic students for their tuition. So there is a, a university or a, a, a post-secondary push to attract uh, international students to bring them here. Uh, we do have some of the best universities in the world to attract those students. However, with that attraction, there has to be the supports. There has to be the housing. There has to be the infrastructure to support those students. We can't just be gouging them at huge expense to themselves and their families to to come here and have nothing for them to support them in terms of jobs and housing, etc. So that is one side. The other side of the story is the fact that Canada has continued to to be a place where people seek asylum. This is our international reputation. Now, we have a federal government that is promoting immigration, and you have sort of this double-edged sword where you have these caps, you have a government that's promoting, you have this, this, um, Mm. this beacon of light, and there isn't the support there for these students. So there, there's a, a growing challenge that has to do with housing and support that I think requires a lot mm. more of a robust conversation. Anthony, we talked about this. I know uh, you and I did off air a few weeks ago. My kids are going right into this uh, ecosystem in the next few years. You've got some time. You said your oldest is tend to stretch this out. But what are you hoping gets fixed about this? Uh, well, we wonder if there's any point in education savings because the whole view that we approach with the value of a university degree is is, is rapidly changing. Uh, so, you know, I wonder what things are going to be like in 10 years. But, you know, the, the way Selena puts it, like wait, there's there are definitely disconnects in the rules and the policies. And I think, broadly speaking, we don't have a responsibly managed intake of people coming to our country, uh, whether it's the immigration system, the refugee system. Uh, the international student system, uh, things are just not connecting. So, for instance, in Toronto, when we have infrastructure challenges, uh, just we can't move around the city for gridlock, obviously price of rents are soaring. Uh, that's a numbers game in terms of the number of people chasing scarce resources. And we have a lot of people who are coming to Canada and then going, whoa, hold on a second. This is not what I thought I was getting here. You know, I, I thought mm-hmm. life was actually a little easier here. And we have these stories of people saying, like, I'm, I'm going back to Ukraine or I'm going back to this place because I can't make it work here. And I, I think we have to have that conversation. And more people are about just how we manage this 
responsibly. People used to be afraid of the conversation because they thought it would mean they're portrayed as, you know, anti-immigrant. But I think what's also anti-immigrant is bringing people here under conditions that set themselves up to fail. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, but, but Selena, it's, it's an odd one, too, because Olivia Chow's the mayor and she does talk about hope and compassion. And those are admirable qualities. We all should put more of those in, in our system as well. But what I never hear from her is, and, and maybe it's up to people like me better to ask her better questions and go, but what about immigration? Who's allowed? Who's who comes? Who gets turned down? Who gets accepted? What are the conversations like between our city and the federal government about how many people are here? Gord Perks told me the city council told me last week they're losing six million dollars a month based on asylum seekers. But I don't know how that gets laid out on a balance sheet like those conversations do have to happen if you're running a major city. Okay, so I feel like I'm back in campaign mode because most of the immigration immigrants are going to come to places like Toronto or Vancouver, where we know the rents, the supports are astronomical. This is a, a challenge because the funding formula for housing, for social assistance has not been properly articulated by any level of government since it has been downloaded to the to the municipalities. And if we're not going to have this conversation about how to change that funding formula and have it not be tied completely to our property taxes or to user fees, we are going to have this conversation for a very long time. We have to start running cities like Toronto, like big cities across the world, changing the funding formula so that you have a dedicated, a predictable fund that grows with the economy for that is earmarked for social assistance and social housing. I'm going to keep saying that until it's done because it needs to happen, especially in Toronto and especially with a federal government that has an immigration policy that's going to double yeah. the population of the country in the next couple of decades. Massively so. And and Anthony, I look at, at the same scenario and say, we want this to work for people who are coming here, but there has to be sort of a blueprint and a plan. And then we need to know what we're doing to support them. It's just that simple. Yeah, I mean, one of the main reasons that I was very opposed to the sort of open border situation at Roxham Road was not necessarily because of the individuals coming who may have yeah. if they applied, you know, in the normal process may have been candidates to receive that entry, but because it was just people coming in at the time and place and volume of their choosing. And then we as a government didn't have the ability to responsibly manage the intake. So it's really all about that and the point that Selena makes about services being provided. Uh, look, when we brought in the Syrian refugees in 2015, the, the people who were saying, oh, hold on a second here on the timeline, were actually the refugee resettlement agencies because yeah. they couldn't always connect people with housing and mm -hmm. food the appropriate time. So they want to think spread out a little bit more. They would have, I'm sure, gladly taken more funding and resources, but they just didn't have the immediate you know, toolkit to distribute them. So I, I think that's that's the conversation here. You know, as Selena says, like, how, how do you responsibly care for people? Um, Anthony, let's stay with you on this TDSB issue. We had Stephen Lecce on yesterday, uh, the Minister of Education, but we also had one of the two moms uh, who are school council co-chairs at a junior public school. They said they couldn't believe it. They were blindsided. Their kids and the one mom that we had on has two nine-year-old twins, and they said their swastika is drawn in the girls' bathroom. They were telling them all sorts of other issues that are happening based on the last seven weeks. But they talked to the school principal, who they like a lot, and the principal says, our hands are tied here to tell you about these incidents. There's something not right with the school boards, the okay. trustees not speaking up when principals don't have the power to inform parents about issues like this. Is that not 
Is that not just the most logical thing I could say about it? Yeah, I think that a really rigid policy like this is just not the way to go. Because obviously you've got swastikas being painted or other sort of racial epithets and, and oh, we're not going to talk about it. I mean, that's a problem. we got to deal with that and, and that shouldn't be happening. At the same time, I remember when the emails would come out saying, oh, there's a confirmed COVID uh, case in your classroom. And everybody naturally, because all these communities are tight-knit, oh, what, what family is it? How did it happen? Who yes. got it? And then you get into those challenges there. You know, when, when you're a kid, that's the time when you screw up. You screw up and make a lot of mistakes and you learn how to become an adult. So, you know, do we want these emails that are basically getting the entire community into, like, shaming one kid for making a dumb decision? Instead, can the community more work and the principal guidance counselor for them to learn and evolve from it? So I, I, I'm of mixed minds here. Mm. I just think that we need to... Uh, you know, not be so rigid in the policy. Selena, how do you how do you view something like this? What should parents be informed of when it comes to yeah. cases like this? So, so Anthony changed my mind on this answer because I was going to go a little bit rigid. Um, but yes, this is this is the opportunity for kids to to really learn before we send them out into adulthood, where doing things like this becomes a very rigid uh, sort of consequence and reaction for the things that you do. However, at the same time, I think that while privacy matters um, are important withholding that information from parents um, about the, the, the things that are happening, you know, it undermines the community's trust and, and it still does leave students vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, parents are not able to talk to their children about, you know, what does that mean? What those things do and what happens to those students who are, who, who have that information and they're, they're holding onto it. Who do they talk to about that? How do they get to understand how the world works and what mm-hmm. is, what is right and not right. So sort of foster, we risk fostering an environment where tolerance, intolerance goes unchecked. So we need to strike that balance between privacy and accountability to the students as well. Um, Selena, the undermining undermining trust thing is is a really good point Selena makes because you don't want to feel like uh, the administration is just hiding things and, you know, being shady behind your back. So I think that's, that's a good point. Yeah, everybody just wants to know, again, I'll use the word blueprint, Anthony. Everybody just wants to know, what's the protocol when something happens? What's the protocol when my kid's involved? We don't want to stigmatize them. I don't want kids outed with their name and age listed. They did this, they did that. I don't need to know about suspensions, but you just got to keep me posted so I can have conversations with my child. It's pretty simple. Right. Let's move to the Taste of the Danforth. Um, It's been a huge hit as long as I can recall. Um, Restaurants and and communities, obviously, in a post-COVID times, are still struggling to get fully back on their feet. But, Selena, when I see Taste of the Danforth is canceled, we don't even know what Toronto's property tax is going to be, what their budget is. Something doesn't add up about the story, but it concerns me greatly that something people love so much draws a million people to that region. Businesses wait for it all year long. It, It worries me when I see a story like this. So we've seen this happen with other festivals, like, you know, part of the black community, we've seen it happening with, you know, Carabana, we've seen, you know, where festivals are are sort of at the the tail end, and then somebody comes in and swoops and saves it. I think that there needs to be, as rightfully said in in the article, a, a different sort of look at funding models, because if the restaurants and people along the Danforth have to fundraise 
for part of the cost for it, what it brings into the city, millions of dollars. Um, there, there has to be some, there's, there's a disconnect somewhere, and that needs to be thoroughly investigated in order for us to, to continue to have these festivals that, you know, some, some restaurateurs wait all year because that is what is going to be driving their revenues for a good chunk of, of the year. So in a time when people really need to, um, to get that revenue going, I think that this is something that needs to be really thoroughly looked at. Um, I, 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 there's a disconnect here, and I just can't see where it is, unfortunately. Really rough to see, uh, Anthony. And again, I, I, there always is public funding. There's public funding for the CNE is publicly funded. The Pride Parade is publicly funded. There's a lot of things that are really good for our community that we do get public dollars from. So I, I don't know. Maybe this is a, a sort of a Hail Mary to announce, hey, we're not going to have it. And then the asks are sort of under the surface. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I think Selena made some good comments on funding there. Someone's got to be the guy to talk about the Danforth bike lanes, and I'm clearly that guy. I know that the bike lanes played a role in past decisions to pause this, and I know it's been frustrating to them because they're these concrete blocks and you just can't move them, and you've got people cheek by jowl, a lot of seniors, and they said this is just so immovable. It's a, it's a hazard. We can't get things set up the way we used to. And I know expanding the bike lane further along Danforth East is, a, is such a headache the community let me ask uh, why is it just as simple as people can't find a place to park if you want to go out for dinner you can't find a place to park so you'll go somewhere else but but that's one of them that's one of them i spoke to an executive at a large food service delivery company who says they're just not delivering to some smaller outlets now okay because it's just not worth it because you can't make the delivery um it's definitely you know coming and going from it it's the immovability of it it's actually like people who want the activists who want bike lanes on every street call it the complete streets model, but it's not a complete street. You have this little bike highway that really almost creates a bit of a disconnect as the casualness of, you know, walking around, crossing the street as a pedestrian kind of changes. And definitely when you're talking about street festivals, just having this, this concrete block right there uh, makes things incredibly difficult. Hardly any business owners on Bloor on Young Street actually want these things. And you know, in the winter months, we know they're not being used. Selena, we really should have got that footage out of uh, of Anthony Fury riding a bike up and down uh, Danforth back in uh, April or May. It would have been a scandal. It really would have. I, we, uh, I just, I, I, I do use them. And the I know you do. I'm the only one when I do it. And he stops at a restaurant too and has something to eat. So That's great. right. And he parks his bike. And he parks his bike illegally. It's 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 horizontal on the sidewalk, not vertical. <laughs> None of the rollerbladers can get past. I think that's part of the uh, part of the problem. Hey, we're fresh out of time. Loved having both you guys on. You brought great energy, and I always appreciate you coming on Toronto today, both of you. Thanks for this. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Have a good day, everyone. Selena Cesar Chavan joining us, and Anthony Fury joining us as well.